0: Well, I do want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I briefly wanted to talk to you about the concept of adoption. On average, there are about 135,000 adoptions that take place in the United States over the course of a year. Of non-step-parent adoptions, 59% are from the child welfare or foster system. Another 26% are from other countries. Some in our church family know the rich blessing of adopting a child. There are many reasons why children are put up for adoption. In some instances, they have tragically lost their parents. In other instances, they may have been victims of abuse and needed to be removed from custody from their biological parents. Sometimes it involves special circumstances where the child is unwanted due to the age or life challenges surrounding the birth mom. There are many reasons. There are also different types of adoptions. Some are called closed adoptions, and this means that the birth mom or the biological parents no longer have a relationship with the child once that adoption has taken place. Some are called semi-open adoptions. And this is where a third party is used to pass on communication between the adopted parents and the biological parents or parent. Some are called open adoptions, where the biological mother or parents maintain open communication with the adopted child with just a few restrictions. Regardless of what type of adoption takes place, the truth is that the adopted child will be introduced to many changes as they're welcomed into their new family. It doesn't mean that the biological parents are forgotten, disregarded, completely dismissed, but it does mean that their new family and their new relationships within that family will become a greater priority this of course doesn't happen overnight but it's something that both the child and the adopting parents will learn and understand in time our passage today helps us to understand our adoption into god's family as jesus introduces the concept and distinguishes the difference between earthly families and being spiritual members of god's family You may have noticed the title of your message is You and Your Families. And families is in the plural on purpose. Most believers, not all, but most believers have an earthly or biological family as well as a church family or adopted spiritual family. How does your adoption into God's family change things? What potential impact Does it have on your relationship with your biological family? What might the Lord have you take away from this passage so that you and I better understand God's will? Let's tackle the text. Let's go to Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35 and read it together. And this is what it says starting in verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This interaction between the Lord and his family is on the heels of the ultimate rebuke that we studied last week. And for those of you that were here, you already know that Jesus had to overcome a number of ministry obstacles. First he had to deal with this massive crowd that continued to swarm him like killer bees from all directions. Second, he had to deal with the scribes and the Pharisees who were constantly looking for different ways to accuse him and plot his destruction. We learned last week that as a result, his family thought that he was out of his mind. And now those thoughts have turned into actions. They're going to speak to Jesus, and verse 21 indicated last week that their goal is to stage an intervention. Literally, they are going to arrest Jesus. Take Him into custody. And they want to get a hold of Him that they might be able to bring Him to His senses. And this is what's going to open up the door For the two revealing moments with the Lord so that believers embrace the priority and privilege of being adopted into God's family. And we're going to understand this in greater detail as we progress through our text. The first revealing moment comes in verses 31 through 33 where we'll see his family's request in verse 31. The crowd's participation in verse 32 followed with our Lord's response. Let's begin with his family's request, which is the first part of this intense moment where our Lord is going to address his earthly family. Look at verse 31. It says, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and if you have an asterisk and you're using the the NASB, again, arrived is in the past tense, but it's actually in the present tense in the original language. His mothers and brothers are arriving and standing outside, and they sent word to Him and called Him. They have come to Capernaum to rescue Jesus. And this is an intense moment. They haven't come to rescue Him from the, just the multitudes and the scribes. They've come to rescue Him from Himself. They think that He's lost His mind. And they're worried about Him. And they've come to get Him They've come to arrest him. Their goal is to take him back with him, with them and that he might get some rest and get clarity of mind. They are there to help the Lord, or so they think. Like everyone else who shows up late to see Jesus, his family must deal with the multitude, which was described as a human traffic jam last week. And we can picture this crowd in three different layers. First, you have those who were present who wanted to approach Jesus for a miracle or they wanted to hear him teach because that's what he did. He continued to proclaim the gospel faithfully and to uh, teach them more about the scriptures. And so there are people who have sought him for that and they're crowding in on him. That would be the first layer. The second layer, of course, would be that of the scribes and the Pharisees who again were continuing to be disgruntled and disrupted by all the attention that the Lord Jesus Christ was receiving from the crowd. So they're waiting and watching and something tells me that the crowd was a little bit heavier with the scribes and Pharisees when Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath than it was during the other days of the week, but they were there. And then the third layer, of course, would be those in his family, those who are coming to see him to get a word with Jesus. Keep in mind that there were no microphones. There were no amplified speakers uh, that were broadcasting the the voice of our Lord. They couldn't send him a text. They couldn't call him on his cell phone to get his attention. They they, they didn't have access to him. And so like everybody else, they had to do it the old-fashioned way. You know, you've heard the expression, sharpen your elbows, right? Show up with the the crowd, and it's pretty interesting. Those who have been in large crowds, you know that there's... uh, If you all show up to see the same thing, it's pretty remarkable how quickly the selfishness comes out and people wanting to get in line and keep moving up and inching forward. And so when his family joins the crowd, they're probably told from the crowd like everyone else who showed up late, hey, get in line like the rest of us, right? And this is why verse 31 says, they sent word to him and called him. And this initiates the telephone game, the, the, the game that we've played where you, you, you whisper through the crowd to try to get somebody's attention. And this leads us to the crowd's participation in verse 32. It says a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him behold your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you In our last verse and in this verse as well we're told twice that his mother's and brothers his mother singular and his brothers plural are outside and this could mean that Jesus is actually in a house And so they're outside of the building, and that's what it could be referenced to, or it could also mean from without, and that they were basically from without, they are outside of the crowd, and Jesus was so far away, and because of the the dense um, popularity of the crowd, the dense nature of the crowd, they, they didn't have access to him. So the people who were closest to him would have been sitting so that those behind them could see and hear. And this really, I think, gives us more indication to the size of the crowd, if they were standing so far back that they were unable to get Jesus' attention. Regardless of which logistical setting it is, the crowd participates by passing on the fact that his mother and brothers are standing off in the back. When this finally reaches Jesus' ears, it becomes apparent that they want him to stop teaching and they want him to come talk to them. And the crowd, by the way, they would see nothing wrong with this. In the ancient Near East, there was nothing that was more important than one's family. Everything centered on the family. If Jesus' family needed him, the crowd would fully expect Jesus to stop teaching them and to go ahead and come to his relatives' And this is going to lead us to our Lord's response in verse 33. Answering them, he said, okay, again, it's in the past tense, asterisk. He is saying, who are my mother and my brothers? So instead of stopping what he's doing and going to his mom and to his brothers, Jesus simply said, who is my mother and my brothers? And the crowd must have been shocked. You don't know who your mother and your brothers are? I mean, think about it just even literally. Mary was perplexed. His brothers probably felt very slighted. They had traveled all the way from Nazareth. They had come to Capernaum. They were, had major concerns about Jesus. And in the presence of other people... He's saying, who are they? Who are they? This is an intense moment. And our Lord's response to his family seems cold on the surface. But it was designed to teach teach some very important truths. And as we'll see, Jesus uses the arrival of his physical family as an opportunity to teach us about his relationship with his spiritual family. And this takes us to the second revealing moment in the heart of this passage. It's an intentional moment. It's a moment to teach you and I about his adopted family. In verse 34, Jesus makes a revealing observation followed with a divine declaration in verse 35 as he capitalizes on this prime teaching moment. His words apply as much to us today as they did to those who heard them directly. Let's start with his revealing observation for you. Verse 34, looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and brothers. Jesus' eyes, after they had been approached, after his ears had heard about the request, he stops, he looks around slowly. And his eyes would have been surveying the crowd. And he wouldn't want them to miss this moment he says this, Behold, my mother and my brothers. And the crowd would have been captivated by this statement. They would have been absolutely captivated. Mary, who had nursed and raised Jesus, loved him all the way into manhood, who had come for him in genuine loving concern, was probably crushed. His brothers would have been shocked as well. What did Jesus mean by this shocking answer? Before we answer that question, let me tell you what it does not mean. Jesus was not severing all ties with his family. Jesus was not encouraging those who were listening to him to sever ties with their families. We can be certain that Jesus loved his family and was grateful for them. And that he wants us to love our earthly families as well. The point that he is making is that spiritual relationships take priority over human relationships. Yes, even family relationships. And though we have the advantage of having a complete biblical perspective, we still find these words difficult as parents and brothers and sisters. There's a you factor that is embedded in this text. And again, Jesus is sharing these same words with us today. What was he saying? Family is important, but it's not all important. There are times when your earthly family and earthbound relationships can come between the believer and what the Lord wants them to do. And that was the problem that our Lord faced in this passage, right here in these verses. Jesus' family came to stop him from doing what his father sent him to do. They were hindering him in standing between him and God's will. And Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's preparing you and I today to be prepared for such a time. He's letting us know that there will be times just like this. Just like the one I am facing, Jesus is saying. Right now, and you see this, right here in this moment. Where God's will will take precedent and priority over your earthly family. A lot of people are so committed to the life of their earthly family that they allow those commitments to supersede spiritual commitments. Their earthly family becomes a spiritual impediment to their commitment to the Lord and His will. Every sacrifice is made for the family. Every commitment is made there. Every moment is occupied there. Everything revolves around what is happening in the family to the point that, guess what? It's idolatrous. It becomes idolatrous. And let me make sure that I'm clear because I love my family. And I know you love your families too. I want to make sure then I'm clear. There's nothing wrong with loving your family. You should. Yet it should be in a way that honors and magnifies Christ. And our Lord is helping us to see that family affairs, if we're not cautious, can pose a spiritual threat to our relationship to the Lord and His will for our lives, if not prioritized correctly. When your family business habitually hinders your relationship in service to the Lord, you need to be concerned. When your family business constantly keeps you away from your adopted church family, you need to be concerned. When your family business continues to hold you back from discipleship and your spiritual growth in Christ, you need to be concerned. And notice how I describe those things. Habitually, constantly, continuously. God wants us to love both of our families. Yet the Lord is lovingly and graciously helping us to see our need to prioritize our adopted family as we fulfill God's will. In Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39, and I'll invite you to turn there because I'm going to read a little bit of the text. Jesus shares that there'll be times when your commitment to your family and your commitment to the Lord are actually going to clash. Starting in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is an alarming and eye opening passage, yet a fitting cross reference for what Jesus is trying to teach us today. And I believe familiarity sometimes causes us to lose sight of this reality. The clash in some families that begins when someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is only going to continue to intensify as they grow and deepen their relationship with the Lord and with His people. It's going to get amplified. There's going to be friction. Now, if the passage ended here, we might be inclined to think that Jesus is merely speaking about persecution. that we might receive from unbelieving family members. But he continues in verse 37, helping us to see that it's really more about the believer's heart. It's about our heart more so than it is about the unbeliever's response in the situation. Okay? Important to see that. But, well, let's just read it. Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And our brother Francis preached this passage several months ago on the high cost of discipleship. And he helped us to see that Jesus was addressing the affections of our hearts in the gospel. Our love and affection must be prioritized and focused on the the Lord first, right? We, We get that. And this is what keeps idolatrous relationships, actually keeps anything that could potentially be an idol, from assuming a greater priority than our relationship with the Lord and fulfilling God's will. When our love and focus is on Christ, this is what keeps us grounded and helps us to love others the most effectively as well. And this is the essence of the divine love, the familial love that Jesus was speaking of when he refers to those in our passage today as his mother and brothers. Let's go back to Mark chapter 3, if you're not there already. You know, I was thinking, like, what would be a good question to, to ask If I were just to ask in general, who is the person that you love the most? What name comes to mind? What is that name? Mom? Dad? Spouse? Boyfriend? Girlfriend? Bestie? Bestie? and I think you know where I'm going with this, right? That, that there can't be another name. Oh, there can be another name of a person that you love and that you love tremendously. But I ask the question, who do you love the most? Who is your prize? Who is, who is your all in all? Who is it that we just sung about? Who is it that means everything to you? Who is it? Who is it? After Jesus makes his revealing observation, in verse 34, he concludes with his divine declaration for you and I, in verse 35. In verse 35, Jesus declares, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The Lord's family had their attention on earthly concerns, earthly matters. They were thinking about the physical well-being of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet Jesus had his attention on what? The Father's will. His Father's business. To Jesus there was no greater priority, nor anything as important as doing the will of the Father. And we see this very on from the early moments of Jesus' life as we look in Uh, Luke chapter 2 and you may recall the account where Jesus his family they were just in Jerusalem and they go ahead and take off and then they return and they come back because Jesus is missing and they find him where In, in the temple and he's surprised that they're asking you know why they're concerned about where he's at And he's basically, in the King James Version, it actually says, don't you know that I'm actually handling my father's business? It's about my father's business. When asked about food in John chapter 4, and the disciples came back and they were concerned physically about the Lord and whether he had food to eat. And he says that I have food that you don't even know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his purposes. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray in Matthew 6. He encouraged them to address the Father. He says, in that prayer, your kingdom come. As he addressed the Father, your will be done. And then at the end of his time on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. He's praying. He's about to drink the full cup of the Father's wrath and said, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. The priority of God's will was the single driving purpose of Jesus' life. It permeated every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. And here in verse 35, Jesus asserts the same priority for you and I and all future disciples. God's people must also prioritize God's will. And the Lord saved us to serve Him and His purposes. And so He has every right to expect us to place His will ahead of our own. Amen? Amen. He does. He does naturally, this leads us to the question, how are you and I to understand God's will for our lives? If Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, then what is meant by the statement? The will of God is a massive subject, and there are a number of resources that can help expand your understanding on that. It would, a starting place would be in a good systematic theology that's going to allow you to, understand the different aspects of God's will. And then there have been some very good books written as well that are practical in nature. I think one of the more popular books is written by Gary Friesen, uh, Decision Making in the Will of God. Um, big, big book. Um, not one that you're going to be able to get through in a day. <laughs> Certainly not a day. Maybe not a week, depending on your ability. If you're a slow reader like me, it's not going to happen in a week. Okay, uh, I do think it's important that every believer have some basic comprehension of God's will. And I think Dr. MacArthur's book, it's actually a little booklet called Found, God's Will, provides the most concise biblical view. And in that book, he basically uses five words that start with the letter S that provide a synopsis or a biblical overview of God's will. Those who have read it have been blessed by it very practical as well if you've not uh, if you don't know what that is i put those s words in in your outline so that you could have them right there for you it's god's will that you would be saved it's god's will that you would be spirit filled it's god's will that you would be sanctified it's god's will that you would be submissive and it's god's will that you would be willing to suffer I want to go ahead and just share a couple of the, uh, the passages. And again, as I came up with this, this isn't... The, the, the words are from Pastor John, but this is, these are the verses that the Lord led me to share with you and just want to provide an overview so that you have a synopsis of, of God's will. Let's start with um, the first aspect that MacArthur says is God's will. And that is that a person be saved. And the scripture that you can jot down is Second Peter 3.9 that says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This reflects the very heartbeat of God and his adopted children, for his adopted children. And this verse is not speaking about universal salvation, but rather the very purposed and determined will of God for his elect. That they would not perish, but be saved through genuine faith. Then, Jesus, in another familiar account, John chapter 3, Nicodemus interacting with him. Nicodemus comes to him, and Jesus lets him know that you must be born again. Every true child of God must experience the new birth. There was a moment in time when the believer saw their sins and understood that they were condemned in the eyes of God. And at that moment, they trusted completely in Christ alone for salvation. They accepted His atonement, His death, as the payment for their sins. They believed in Him as their risen Lord, and they were saved. And that is the essence of the new birth. This is the spiritual birthmark on the life of the believer. It is a, a, a reality. If you are born again, you have received a new divine nature according to 2 Peter 1.4. You are a new creation, a new creature according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And it's obvious that your heart has been changed to love God and to live in obedience to him. This is the first the most significant aspect of God's will for you that you be saved. And that's why our ministry, when it starts with m- making disciples, right? Making followers of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, that it starts with a gospel ministry. It has to start there. You must have life, you must have spiritual life to make spiritual progress. It's not about morality, it's not about human goodness. It's about being saved. It's about being secure. It's about knowing. It's about having a spiritual birthmark. And knowing that God changed your heart. That he changed your heart according to his plan and his purposes to live for him and to live for his namesake. Secondly, it's God's will that you be spirit filled. Everyone's life is on a running clock. God's clock. And God's word calls us in Ephesians chapter 5 to make the most of our time because the days are evil in Ephesians chapter 5. Then in verse 17 of chapter 5, it specifically commands us not to be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. Great passage. Verse 18 says that you and I are not to spend our time in dissipation. Uses the example of drunkenness, and we shared that any example could have been used. But that was what the Spirit led Paul to record. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to describe what this process looks like in verses 19 through 21, saying, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wish This is like a sermon within the sermon. I mean, wish we could camp out, but I I want to just highlight something that's significant from this text, and that's the priority of God's Word, and we're going to spend more time talking about that second hour. With care groups starting up, it's a, it plays a pivotal role in the spirit-filled life. In a parallel passage, and in Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, right? That's, that's the parallel to being filled with the spirit. If being saved is a believer's birthmark, then being spirit-filled is a believer's bookmark. A love for and commitment to God's Word is certainly a primary aspect of God's, God's will. Well, we need the book. We see the, the freedom that's in the book. We see the guidance that's offered to us in the book. That will help us to live the Spirit-filled life. Third, it is God's will that you be sanctified. When Paul wrote the model church in Thessalonica... He encouraged them to excel still more. And when we get to the end of his first letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is led by the Spirit to record this, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so much of what they had to communicate it, there was no print and press, there were no Bibles recorded yet. The Spirit guided them to share the exhortations and the commands. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul's time was no different than the time that we're living in today, where sexual immorality was epidemic. Granted, the temptations and the seductive elements that exist in our time are much greater as it relates to TV, as it relates to printed material, as it relates to the internet, as it relates to all these different forms. But at the heart level, the battle with sexual sin was still the same. And the Greek word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which is a blanket term that covers any and all type of sexual sins. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, all of is covered and mentioned, those things are mentioned in the Old Testament, and it's covered under this umbrella term in the New Testament. It is God's will for believers to, to be set apart from every aspect of porneia, which in our day would also include pornography, or anything that is going to promote or incite sinful lust. It's God's will that you distance yourself from any and all aspects of porneia. Any and all? It, 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 it's a separation, it's sanctifying. It's being set apart from those things. And we know that there's mercy and grace in the gospel and for forgiveness. But there's also an an intentionality and a purpose that there should be progress as you're progressing in evangelism and, and discipleship. That you're not ensnared or entrenched in sexual sin. That you are distancing, you are creating distance from those things. From the point that you were saved, what measurable spiritual progress have you made in distancing yourself from those things? Good question to ask. And again, when we talk about care groups next hour, when we talk about preparing our hearts for care group ministry, and you will not want to miss second hour, I'm telling you, even if you're not a part of a care group, I'm telling you, if there was one second hour that you want to stay for today as it relates to talking about transparency, accountability, prayer, and progressing in the Christian life, today is the day that you want to be here. It is. Though the Lord used the Apostle Paul to address sexual sin specifically in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 as it relates to our sanctification, we know this is, this is the primary uh, sin that he, he mentions right here, but we know that our sanctification encourages us to be separate from all sin. And that's why we have in First 1 Peter 1.14 and 15. Where it says as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts. Which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. The fourth aspect of God's will. Is that you be submissive. We talked about this when we were taking our journey through Titus, that submission is not a very popular concept in our culture, and it's surrounded by negative connotations. But the truth is that it is probably one of the most beautiful expressions of Christlikeness. Submission. We saw earlier how committed Christ was to his Father's will as he submitted to it. The Lord Jesus Christ modeled perfect submission. And before you and I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all we did was chase our sin. And when, after salvation, after coming to faith, after being given a heart of repentance, now all we do is run from our sin. We want to turn from it. We want to distance ourselves as much as we possibly can. How do you and I do this practically? We submit to God's commands for our lives as believers. Through the enabling grace that's imparted to us through the gospel, the power of Christ through the gospel, we're empowered to submit to the glorious commands of the scriptures. And this is where Christian joy and freedom is. Submission and obedience steers us clear from the destructive elements of this world. And that is why we're commanded in Romans twelve two, do not be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. What are we renewing our minds with? The scriptures. I think we all get that. I've mentioned that before. But can I just add a little bit more emphasis? We need to renew our minds with the commands of scriptures. That is what provides guidance and direction for our lives. That is what provides Every command, New Testament command, is designed to make a person more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. To make us holy. To make us set apart. Submission is commanded throughout the New Testament for us. We're to submit to God. According to James 4.7, we're submit to the government in 1 Peter 2.13. We're to submit to the elders of the church in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. We're to submit to one another in the fear of Christ in Ephesians five twenty one. Wives to husbands, children to parents, employees to their bosses. It's God's will for you and I. A life of submission that will protect us and grow us, and most importantly, glorify Him. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen on that one? It's it's. It's where it's at. The fifth aspect of God's will is suffering. Again, not another welcomed concept in our culture. Sign me up for the list of suffering. Certainly not going to hear that message broadcasted in a lot of seeker sensitive ministries these days. They're reluctant to teach about it. And God used the Apostle Paul when writing to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Jesus shares more about suffering in his own words in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, when he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used, used to treat the prophets, and he also shares a, a similar uh, passage in, in, in similar words in Matthew chapter five verses eleven and twelve. And you and I are living in an Antichrist world, and when we came to faith in Christ, we signed up for suffering, and Jesus led by his ultimate example. And perhaps the clearest and most powerful passage that we find in Scripture is in 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, and I'll just read it for you because it's so beautiful. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he offered He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The beauty of Of us walking in the will of God when we're saved, when we're spirit filled, when we're sanctified, when we're submissive, when we're willing to suffer, it comes with a tremendous privilege. And that's where our passage in Mark chapter 3 ends. The very last thing that Jesus says Jesus concludes, His divine declaration for you and I in verse 35 if you want to turn back there with me Mark 3, 35 by declaring the priority of God's will and then he finishes by declaring the privilege that is ours when we embrace God's will. Verse 35 says For whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. You notice Ladies, do you notice? So beautiful. Just to make sure there, there wasn't any confusion as it related to female fellowship, he included sister in this final expression. And what a tremendous privilege it is to be adopted into the family of God. And think about all the rich blessings that come with that tremendous privilege. Our fellowship the one and others of Scripture, the opportunity that we have to lean on each other, the opportunity that we have to praise God together, the opportunity that we have to grow together as the family of God. Tremendous, tremendous privilege. And yet I want to be a realist, I want to be real about the reality as it relates to our biological family. Yeah, we've been adopted into God's family. At the beginning of the message, you remember I described three types of adoptions? Closed, semi-open, and open adoptions. And I think this really speaks to the responses of our biological families as it relates to to our faith and our adoption in Christ's family. There are some in this room when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shared with your family, that came at a great cost. I know it came at a great cost in my own life. When I was led to go to the seminary to be trained, and my mom said, I will never go to your church and I will never come to your graduation. And I'm certain that there are people present in this room today that have had a much, much stronger response as it's related to their parents or their biological family. And it's a mark of a closed adoption. They're closed. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Nothing to do with it. To the point where some people have actually been told, get out. Get out. You're gonna trust in Christ? Get out. Does that close it? Wow. Closed. Not everybody's experience. In all these situations, unlike legal adoption today, it's not it's not permanent. There's progress that can be made. What was the other type? Semi-open. Third party communicates. On behalf of the biological and the adopted parents, you come to faith, but you want to know what? They don't want to hear it from you. You try to share your faith. I, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. But, but you don't understand. You, you, you need Christ. I, I know, I know, I know. You've shared it before. Thanks. Thanks. And they're not completely closed. But it's probably going to take some third-party communication, if you know what I mean. We're going to have to pray that the Lord sends workers into the harvest and allows people to continue to interact with them so that they get to hear more about Christ and to hear more about the gospel. And then there is open adoption. Praise the Lord for those of you who have been raised in families who... Are, they're believers. They've trusted in Christ. There is no impediment. There is no obstruction as it relates to you fulfilling God's will because they're trying to do the very same thing, right? Amen? It's a beautiful, beautiful expression. When both wills are aligned, when both care about the progress that the other person is making, it's beautiful. I just think about our church family and the level of familial love. And and I'm I'm telling you, there is an aspect of our love that exists on Sunday, but it it goes to a deeper and more abiding level, and it's intended to in discipleship relationships that take place in care group, where we can get to know each other better. And if you're someone here visiting today, we're so grateful that you would come to our church. We're thrilled that you would be here today. But can I just share something with you, and I'm just going to be straight up? That if you're looking for a church where you can just duck in on a Sunday and duck out and, and mark a you know a place just to, to, to go to church, and that's it, but there's not a desire to engage with the family of God and to progress in evangelism discipleship and to grow together and to build relationship I'm just going to be straight up this isn't the church for you I am being straight up and I, but, but make sure you understand I want it to be the church for you and so does everybody that's in our church family we want you to stay here we want to walk together we want to be together we want to grow together okay Because there's so much that the Lord wants to give to us through our spiritual family. And it's there, and we're going to talk more about it second hour. Well, I want to conclude with a quote from J.C. Ryle, who had this to say about our final verse in our passage today. How much there is in this single expression... What a rich mine of consolation it opens up to all true believers. Who can conceive the depth of our Lord's love towards Mary, the mother that bore him and whose bosom he had nursed? Who can imagine the breadth of his love towards his brothers according to the flesh, with whom the tender years of his childhood had been spent? Doubtless no heart ever had within it such deep wellsprings of affection as the heart of Christ yet even he says he says of all who do the will of god that each is his brother and sister and mother let all true christians drink comfort out of these words let them know that there is one at least who knows them loves them cares for them and reckons them as his own family what if they are poor in this world they have no cause to be ashamed When they remember that they are brethren and sisters of the Son of God. What if they are persecuted and ill-treated in their homes because of their religion? They remember the words of David and apply them to their own case. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Psalm 27.10. And finally, let all who persecute and ridicule others because of their religion take warning by these words and repent. Whom are they persecuting and ridiculing? The relations of Jesus, the Son of God, the family of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Surely they would do wisely to hold their peace and consider well what they are doing. These whom they persecute have a mighty friend. The Redeemer is mighty and he shall plead their cause. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we are at the place where we often arrive at the end of a message where your word has been proclaimed and we see different realities and principles that apply to our own life. Your your will challenges us. It challenges us in so many different ways. We thank you for the perfect righteousness that is ours In Christ, we thank you for the enabling grace that comes through the gospel that we could never earn, that we could never merit on our own. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today that has not trusted in you completely for salvation, that they would cry out today to you in forgiveness and that they would turn quickly from a life in pursuit of self to living for you and your namesake. to do your will and that's the heartbeat of our church Father help us to do your will help us not to think lightly of the riches that have been bestowed to us through Christ through the gospel and there is an aspect where we have to reach on this side of the cross but you give us the very strength to do so You stretch us, you fashion us, you change us according to your will. And So we just want to take some time right now just to thank you for all that you are continuing to do. I ask, Father, as our care group ministry kicks off for the year that you would bless every single care group with deeper and more abiding relationships one to another that are in Christ that are in your son. We look forward to the gospel progress that will be made as a result. We ask now that you'll just bless us as we sing this final song, that you would be our vision, that you would cast vision for us to see what it is that you have for us as it relates to your will. We give you praise and thanks in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. We are going to sing Be That.